Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. So we continue this series called Enough. It's about contentment. It's about who we are and, and what we're doing with the, the money that we get, the, you know, the, the stuff we accumulate. Um, you know, someone comes into your house and was to go through your closet or to go through your garage or to go through, you know, your den or whatever, it would say a lot about you and what you value and what you place a high premium on. I want to start this morning by talking to you about a, a young man named Mike. He went to church and heard his preacher preaching on uh, this subject of contentment. And Mike heard the preacher use those famous words that Paul said in Philippians, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And Mike decided after hearing the message and after reading that passage of scripture, he decided that he was going to go on a one-month spending freeze. For one month, he would not dine out. For one month, he was a reader, but he wasn't going to buy new books. He would read the books that were already on his shelf. He loved music, but he was only going to listen to the music that he owned or that he could stream or whatever, but he wasn't going to go buy any new albums or CDs. He wasn't going to do that. He was going to go on a one-month spending fast, not because he was broke, not because he looked at his checkbook and said, man, I'm out of money, I need to make a change here. That's not what he was doing. He was actually was 26 years old, single, had a really good job, was putting money away. Everything was up and to the right for Mike. He was a, a man with, young man with a great job and a great salary, but he was really just buying whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. And he decided after hearing that sermon that something needed to change. Fast forward a few years later and check in on Mike to see how it went, and he says, nothing was special to me anymore. I was buying this and I was buying that and I was having very little satisfaction with the purchases that I was making. Nothing was special anymore. Restaurant meals weren't special because I could go wherever I wanted, whenever I wanted, so I decided to go on a one-month spending fast and then all of a sudden, buying something became a treat. That turned into a habit for Mike. That turned into a habit where he went not from just going from one month, but he would go, he decided he would alternate. He would, he would fast for a month, and then he would allow himself to modestly spend. And then he would fast for a month, and he would modestly spend. And so he started this cycle of, of trying to just be very careful when he was spending, but then he went through those months where he really tried hard to just live on what he had and to not spend anything unnecessarily. He, he realized the wisdom of his parents, and maybe your parents did this to you, and maybe as a parent you've done this to your kids, where they, you, you know, you go to a big box store or whatever, or a dime store, and it doesn't matter where you take your kids, right? They're going to find something they want. And they disappear, and they come back with a Barbie or something in their hand. Mommy, I, I want this. Can I get this? Can I take this home? And you know that's going to start just a, the incessant... You know, they are relentless, are they not? Mommy, 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 can I, mommy, can I, mommy, can I? And so he had taken a page out of his mother's book and he said, what I'm going to do is if I see something that I want or that I might like to buy, if I'm in a spending freeze, what I'm going to say is, 
I may allow myself to buy that next month, but I'm going to wait this month. And he you know, was amazed at how many times when next month came, he suddenly didn't think he needed it as much as he did in the moment. And so, he said, I'll, I'll look and see if in March, the, the severity of it or the, the urgency of it, it feels as heavy to me as it does now. So today's conversation is going to be both deep and important. I think it's possible with each of us that there are empty places in our souls that God desires to fill with himself. That's really the premise this morning. What if we are filling our lives full of stuff and there's very little space for God to get in there and move around? What if we have filled our lives so full of junk that there's very little room for God. Today we're going to talk about our core identity, what it means for God to make his home in you, and the importance of all that in the way that, in, in what we have and what we need and what we want and what we buy. We're going to take a look at Ephesus both this weekend and next. You're going to see some video here. We're going to look at Corinth after that, and then we'll look at Laodicea in the book of Revelation after that. You're looking at Main Street in Ephesus um, you're going to also see a theater there with 25,000 seats. The acoustics in that thing would be amazing. You see that road that leads out, that goes out to the port. And at the end of that road, the ships would have all come in with all of their goods into the bay, into the port. And they would offload their goods, all this stuff that would come in. It would make its way down that main street, which was known as the Arcadian Way. So what would happen in Ephesus is these boats would dock, offload their goods, and down the Arcadian Way, they would make their way until they got to the marketplace. Now, we've already talked about this, but it bears repeating. Ephesus was not a one-stoplight town with a, a five-and-dime and a gas store and a few goats, okay? It was, it was more than that. Ephesus had engineers, it had builders, magistrates, senators, it had wholesalers, retailers, and it had slaves, Ephesus was probably the fourth largest city in the Roman world. If you were to go just outside of town, you would find the temple to the goddess Artemis. That temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was a pretty happening place. The Apostle Paul, just shortly after the time of Jesus, travels to the city of Ephesus, which is now modern-day Turkey. It's in, Ephesus would be found in modern-day Turkey. It's on the western side. It's on the Aegean coastline. And he goes to Ephesus, and he will spend probably more time after his conversion in the city of Ephesus than any other city that he, than he stays in for the rest of his life. He'll spend about three years of his life there. Paul comes to town and starts talking about the crucified Christ. And he talks about God becoming human and, and, and giving his life as a sacrifice for you and me. And many people responded to that message and became Christ followers. Paul spends three years there and then he leaves. And what he leaves behind are a bunch of baby Christians. Now, when you became a Christian for the first time, you were a baby Christian. But the, the great thing for you was you had other more mature believers around you who kind of could show you the ropes. Somebody that you could look up to. Somebody you could model your life after. If you didn't quite know what to think or maybe a way to approach something, you might look at somebody and go, I'm just going to do it the way they do it. They seem to have this figured out. But in Ephesus, they were all baby Christians. There were no mature Christians because there hadn't been a church that long. 
And so Paul inherits, you know, he leaves behind the, the, these, these um, people who have a lot to learn, and they have new hearts, and they have old habits. Paul would eventually write a letter to them. We call it the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bible and want to turn, it's, we're going to look at Ephesians 1 today. Just about four verses there we want to pay some attention to. This is a follow-up letter to help this group of Jesus followers get better grounded in their faith. Let me just tell you this about the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. There are six chapters in this letter, okay? One through six. The, the, there's, there's one through three, and they're subdivided, one through three, and then you notice a change in the way Paul talks to them in chapters four, five, and six. In, in chapters four through six, you get a very heavy dose of how to live. That's what Paul's about. That's what he's trying to teach them is, is how to live in the second part of the, the, the letter. In chapter 5, he talks to them about not getting drunk with wine and, and to be filled with God's Spirit. He talks to them, and he's writing to church people now about, hey, don't be intoxicated. And then in, in chapter 4, he, he, he tells them, those of you who have been stealing should steal no longer, but you should get a job and you should work with your hands so that you can share what you have with other people. So now Paul's trying to take people who, who their hearts have changed. They got new hearts. They got old habits. He's saying, listen, you might have gone out in the past and stolen from other people and tried to you know, make gain that way. Instead of doing that, get a job, work with your hands, not just so you can have it for you, but so that you can help somebody else. It's a great lesson for us. What we have is not just intended for us. We're intended to help people with what we have. So he's trying to turn some people from thieves into philanthropists. He's talking about honesty. He's talking about wholesome speech. He's talking about using words that don't tear down, but instead use words that build up. He would talk about anger and rage. That's where we get the advice, don't let the sun go down on you while you're still angry. We get that from there. Don't you think it's interesting that these are the kind of things that Paul had to write to church people in the day? In chapters 5 and 6, he's going to talk to them about sexual purity. One of the things that was going on in Ephesus was there was that, that temple, there, was a, there would have had temple prostitutes, and the men would have become very accustomed to, it was just a cultural thing. It's just what you did. You went to the temple and you, you lay with temple prostitutes. It was just it was what they did. And now they become Christians, and Paul says, hey, don't do that anymore. Don't do that. So you kind of get the instruction in chapters 4 through 6. Sexual purity, speech patterns, anger, rage, gossip. He's addressing those kind of things. In chapters 4 through 6, he's talking about this is how you behave. This is how, this is how a believer in Jesus behaves. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's none of that. He doesn't go after lifestyle issues in chapters 1 through 3. All he does in those chapters is to talk about how they belong. Before he talks about behaving, he sets up how they belong. He says, well, you know, we'll get to, you know, talking about that kind of stuff. He knows he has to address some of these behavioral issues. He knows some things have to change. And he's going to remind them of their identity is what he's going to do. Paul is going to anchor their identity in the fact that they are children of their creator. He says, before we talk about behavior, let's talk about the fact that you belong. This is an important discussion for us today as we talk about our identity, but what I really want to talk about today is, is as we talk about identity, what I'm really talking about is freedom. 
That's what this is really about. The more we are in tune with our core identity as a follower of Jesus, the freer we are to say, you know what, I will buy that. I'm not going to buy that. And I'm not going to buy that, but I will buy that. We, we have a freedom. It's understanding your core identity will give you this incredible amount of freedom when it comes to what we have, what we need, what we think we need, and what we buy. Paul's going to basically give them three images uh, in these verses that we're going to look at today about how they belong and about who they are. And Paul gives them in the form of, he says, there's the image of adoption, there's the image of redemption, and there's the image of sealing, S-E-A-L-I-N-G, sealing. We're going to talk about those three this morning. If you have your Bible open to Ephesians 1, I want to draw your attention to the very end of uh, verse 5 and, and verse, uh, I'm sorry, the end of verse 4 and verse 5. It says, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Why did he adopt you in accordance with his pleasure and will? Well, what's that mean? It means that he wanted to. He wanted to adopt you and me. The first image of identity, before he tells them to do anything, he says, I just need you to remember, I, I need you to remember that you've been adopted. See, here's the challenge this morning as we read this, the, these verses. The challenge for us this morning is that we bring our own idea of what adoption means in our culture in the 21st century. We do not have an understanding of what adoption was in the first century, and so when we, when we look at something like this, we don't fully understand what's going on. The better question is, how did adoption happen in that culture? What was going on with those guys? The culture into which Paul is writing is a culture that is known for child abandonment. Child abandonment. Often when a baby was born, it would be brought and placed at the feet of the father and you know, they would put it at his feet and kind of back away and he would approach the child and it was entirely up to him what he was going to do. He didn't have to accept that baby. And if for any reason he made a decision he was not going to accept the baby, he would just turn around and walk away. And when they saw him walk away, that, that baby, there was some bad stuff in that baby's future. So he might look down and see that it's a girl and he wanted a boy. I'm walking away. It's a, it's a boy and I wanted a girl. I'm walking away. He might look down and see a, 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 you know, a, a facial blemish or you know, something, a, a birthmark or something like that and decide to himself, you know, I don't want that baby. And if he didn't want it, if for any reason he didn't want it, he would just turn around and walk away, which, you know, kind of makes you wonder some things. Now you say, what, you know, what becomes of the baby? That's the question. What becomes of the baby? The baby would then be exposed, is what they called it, to the elements. They wouldn't kill it. That's what we do in our culture. You think that's barbaric. Think about what we're doing in our culture. The attitude was more like, let's let the gods decide. Often the baby would be taken to the marketplace or uh, overnight and left there, or they might take it outside the city gate, out to the garbage dump, and they would say, let the gods decide. They would leave it at the, on the garbage dump. If it was summer, the baby would likely die of dehydration. If it was wintertime, the baby would die of hypothermia. It would not have been uncommon to have walked the streets of Ephesus at night and to walk close by the dump and hear faint cries 
of infant children, newborns that have been born and placed on the garbage dump because the father wanted nothing more to do with them, so they just took them out there and left them. Speculators would go out to the dump and they would pick through the babies trying to figure out which ones were viable, which ones could they take home and invest a little bit in and raise that child up to sell it as a slave. There were slaves in the city of Ephesus who had been dumped as kids. A small pamphlet was written by a doctor named Seranus. It was entitled, How to Identify an Infant Worth Raising. And it was a booklet on trying to figure out how to pick a child that you could raise and how, which child would bring back the most return on investment. There were followers of Jesus in the church at Ephesus who had been dumped. It was a culture where parents dumped kids all the time. So before Paul starts talking to the people in the church at Ephesus, before talking to them about rage, before talking to them about sexual activity or intoxication or gossip patterns or speech patterns or theft or lying, before he gets into any of that, he reminds these people, remember who you are. Remember who you are. The God of the universe picked you out, he picked you up, and he carried you home. That's who you are. Your most defining moment is not the dad who dumped you. Your most defining moment is the God who rescued you. He adopted you. And that's what Paul's saying to us. Let me ask you something before we move on to the next image. Who dumped you? A fiancé that ended the engagement? A parent that walked, or maybe a parent that didn't walk but was not emotionally available to you at all? Who dumped you? Maybe a child that ran away from God and kind of ran away from you and things have never been the same and you've been hurt ever since? A spouse? A company that said after many years of service, we don't need you anymore, we're going to cut you loose. Paul said, if you have become a follower of Jesus, your primary identity now is forged not in the person that dumped you, but in the God who took you in. This means that your core identity is not found in, some, in what someone did to you, it's found in what someone did for you. I don't know what's been done to you. I don't know how bad it was, but however bad it was, however terrible, however tragic, your core identity should not be found in what was done to you. It should be found in what's been done for you. He adopted you. Your core identity is that of a treasured son or a treasured daughter. That's who you are. He picked you out. He picked you up. He took you home. Adoption is the first image we see. The second image is that of redemption. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. God is grace rich. Now you read that passage, if you're anything like me, when you're reading the Bible, you come, there's certain words when you come across those words, it just messes with your brain, right? And one of the words that that happens with me is the word redemption. I read it and I, I know what redemption means, but it's, it's a theological word and it's kind of big and you know, it's, it's not a word that we use often in our language. It's kind of clunky for us. 
And if your mind works anything like mine, when I come across that word, I'm tempted for just a brief second, my brain reaches up and goes, okay, I'm going to check out while he's talking about redemption because I don't want to, what is that? What is that? Talk about something I understand. See, in the first century, redemption wasn't a, a theological word. In the first century, redemption was a business word. To redeem just simply means to buy something. You, you're going to see some video footage here of the marketplace at Ephesus. I told you a couple weeks ago, it's two football fields side by side in size. There's a courtyard area where you could buy stuff. There was kiosks. And then on the outside, there were shops that you could go in and you could buy just about anything that you wanted. It was called the Agora. And in the Agora at Ephesus, you could buy cloth, you could buy clothing, you could buy wine, you could buy jewelry, you could buy purple cloth from Thyatira, which was very desirable. You could buy spices from the Far East. You could buy all kinds of things in Ephesus at the Agora. You could also buy slaves. You could buy people. You could buy a slave that had been raised after it had been found in the garbage dump and raised to be sold as a slave to someone who had enough money to pay for it. I would encourage you to go home and Google slave trade in Ephesus. And what you will find if you Google those words is a bunch of articles will come up, and if you read enough of those articles, what you're going to find is from in the 200-year period of 100 B.C. to 100 A.D., in that 200-year period, what you find is that Ephesus was probably had the heaviest concentration of slaves of anywhere else in the known world. They, 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 there were slaves everywhere in Ephesus. You could buy people at Ephesus. So I want to just run a scenario by you. There is a slave who's been uh, bought by this master. He's brought him to his house. He's going to work for him out in the field. And he is out and he is pruning in his orchard. And the foreman comes out and whistles to him, hey, come on, the master wants to see you, put down your stuff and follow me. And, and so all the other people that are working around this other slave, it's going through their mind, what's going on? What, what did he do? What's about to happen to him? Can't be good. If the master wants to see him, it can't be good. This guy puts down his pruning shears and he's walking away and, and he's walking to the master's house and he's, you know, he's doing that thing that you did when you got called to the principal's office, you know that thing? Where you're like, what did I do? I did that, but that can't get me that, in that much trouble. So he's walking, trying to figure out, what, what did I do? What mistake did I make? Did I speak when I wasn't supposed to speak? Did I do something I wasn't supposed to do? All the way to the, to the house, he's trying to figure it out. He walks in, and he sees his master sitting at a table in the courtyard. And then he looks over on the other side of the table, and there's a man that he knows. It is his brother-in-law. And the brother-in-law has got a pouch, and he's reaching into the pouch, and he's counting out the coins. And when he finishes, he says, I think that's the price that we agreed on. May I take him now? And the, the master throws a piece of paper at him in disgust and says, you know, take it and get out of here and leave me alone. So he, the, the, the brother-in-law looks at the slave and he says, come on, we're going home. He hasn't seen this guy in maybe four or five years. Come on, we're going home. And as he's walking out the door, it dawns on him for the first time, wait a minute, I'm free. I'm free. He just bought my freedom for me. See, that slave was redeemed. To redeem means to buy 
something. In verse 7, where Paul's talking about the identity of the Jesus follower, he says, let's get something straight. First, you are adopted. You are, you are a treasured daughter or a cherished son of God. And now he's saying he bought you, he adopted you, and he bought you. Except when Jesus bought you, he didn't pay for it with money. As we talked about in the communion meditation, he paid for it with his own blood. Verse 7 says, in him we have redemption. Through his blood. Paul's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. I had a conversation with a good friend of mine this morning after first service, and she walked up. She said, you know, when you put that picture up on the screen, I looked at that and realized that adoption is not cheap. Adoption comes at a cost. People who adopt babies in our culture spend a lot of money. They go to a great expense to be able to bring that baby into their home and love it and raise it. That's the cost of our adoption. Paul's writing this about Jesus getting a, a crown of thorns put on his head and, and being taken to the whipping post and having his back stretched taut and somebody raking a cat of nine tails across his back, ripping his back open. He's talking about Jesus being taken to the cross and pinned there with long spikes driven into his hands and his feet. All of that in an effort to buy us. And he says, you were adopted and you were redeemed. Paul's going to come into verse, uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6 and he's going to talk about behavioral issues and he's going to say, listen, we got to fix some things. You can't live like this anymore. But that's chapters 4, 5, and 6. Before we get into any of that, we got to talk first about who you are. You, he adopted me and he redeemed me. And he redeemed you. Let's pretend for a moment that we are going to go to a house church in Ephesus. Uh, typically, the, the house churches in that day would have been um, at someone's house that had a little bit of means. Someone that had a little bit more than the rest. And their houses would have been fairly large, a lot of times with a courtyard. And so you're going to walk into this house, this, this church, house church in Ephesus. There's a courtyard there. You walk in, there are other believers that are there. You look across the way, there's a little 15-year-old girl sitting with, with some others or milling around, and, and you, you, know, you notice there's this thing on her arm, on her hand. And, and you, you kind of wonder about who she is. There's a mark on her hand. That mark talks about who she belongs to. Slaves were tattooed with the mark of their owner. I'm showing you a picture there. I've cut out the bloody part that would make you sick with the maggots and the and tried to do you a favor. But you see the words, the letters there, SPQR. This is from one of my favorite movies of all time, Gladiator. Probably my in the top three. I love watching that movie. Um, I don't know too many men that don't like the movie Gladiator. But this is a in the movie, he's a general in the Roman Legion. And he has the letters SPQR tattooed on his arm that stands for the the people that it says that he belongs to the senate and the people of rome that's what that's about he belongs to the roman empire there's a point in the movie where you see a a guy walking into a room where where maximus is and he's kind of over in the corner in the shadows and he's taking something sharp and he's cutting his arm he's trying to scrape 
that SPQR off of his arms because he no longer wants to be identified or belonging to the Roman Empire because they've betrayed him and he wants nothing more to do with them. And so here he is trying to take it off of his skin. Slaves were tattooed, soldiers were tattooed, runaway soldiers were branded, and oftentimes when slaves were bought from one owner to another, they would brand those slaves as well. And you see this girl with this tattoo on the inside web of her hand, and you say, what is that? And she might say something like, well, you you must not be from around here, because if you were from around here, you would know what that is. I'm a slave, and I belong to the house of Cornelius. And that's the mark that says that I belong to him. I'm his. He owns me. Keep that in mind as we read this next verse, verse 13. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Paul says, I came to Ephesus, and we we believe that he came about 53 A.D., And he says, I talked to you about Jesus who voluntarily was crucified for you when you placed your faith in that crucifixion as God rescuing you from your sin. God placed his seal of ownership in you and on you in the form of his Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you. In other words, God sealed you. For the 15-year-old girl who is a slave girl in Ephesus, her most identifying mark is not the C on the inside of her hand, The most identifying mark for her is the Holy Spirit that is in her heart that tells her that she belongs to someone that's even greater than Cornelius. She belongs to God. That's her identity. Not that of a slave. Not that of a 15-year-old slave girl who belongs to Cornelius. She is marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit on her life. Please say that with me. I'm going to ask you to say uh, this one thing. I don't do this often, but I just think that would, would help us to hear this morning ourselves say this word i'm going to say it, uh, together in a moment but the, the word is is i am his okay one two three i am his let's do it again i am his that's your core identity that's who you are you are his sometimes we need to just remember whose we are listen enjoy your stuff if you have a great car enjoy that car if you're, if you're a person who has really nice clothes, when you put those on, enjoy those clothes. Enjoy that. I, you know, if you've got a nice motorcycle or bike or maybe, maybe for you it's just a porch swing and you sit on that porch swing and you rock back and forth, you look out over a great pasture and it's just peaceful and the breeze blows and you got some lemonade or some iced tea and you're like, man, this, it doesn't get any better than that. Enjoy that. I want you to enjoy that. I'm not suggesting at all that you shouldn't enjoy the things that you have. But always remember that your identity is not what belongs to you, but that your identity is anchored in the reality of to whom you belong. There's a difference. You are his. It isn't what you purchase. It's who purchased you that makes up the core of who you are. Anybody recognize this guy? I had an interesting conversation this morning with some people who said, I did not know that Mr. Rogers had a first name. That is Fred Rogers. You know, we've grown up just calling him Mr. Rogers, and you don't really think about the fact that he's got a first name, but his name is Fred Rogers. He, is an or- he was an ordained Presbyterian minister. He passed away several years ago of cancer. He wrote a little book called The Meaning of Life, and in it he said, The older I get, 
the more I've come to believe that nothing I buy can take away my loneliness, fill my emptiness, or heal my brokenness. I was talking about Mike earlier who took a one-month spending fast. There was another lady that I heard about who, who decided she was going to fast for one year. I'm going to go on a one-year spending fast. I'm going to buy only what is absolutely necessary to keep me alive, and everything else I'm either going to give away or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put away, but, but I'm not going to buy a bunch of stuff. And so she started in on this one-year spending fast, and an interesting thing happened toward the end of the first month, into the second month. She started to really become depressed. And the depression, the onslaught of that would come, the onset of it would come at specific times in the day. And what she started to, as she really started paying attention to who she is and how she is and what she was doing, she started to realize, hey, when, I, when I'm going through this day, there's points in the day where I'm getting really, really depressed. In the past, the way I used to, she noticed herself kind of making her way to her computer and getting online and searching out things to buy. And she realized pretty quickly that what she had done, for she'd gotten into a habit, that she would go every day and there would be a point in the day where she would get depressed or she would get bored or she would get lonely. And she would migrate to her computer and she'd realize that she'd been buying stuff to fill a void, to fill an emptiness inside of her. And she said, it never dawned on me until I went through this exercise that that's what I was doing. She said, what I was doing is I was looking for temporary substitutes. Time-wasting imposters were preventing me from discovering my true identity in my creator. What if there are places in our souls that God longs to fill up for us and what if we are cramming those spaces so full of junk that there's no room in our heart for God to do the things that he wants to do in us, for him to move and change us? You probably know where I'm going. It's not going to be a big surprise. Our project for the week coming up is a one-week spending fast. Now, you may not be ready to do that this week. But I, I really hope that in the next month you will take a crack at this for one week. I've been practicing this for a while now, um, trying to do better. I've gone through two weeks where I've just spent as little as I can. Uh, I will do that again this week. Now, do what you have to do. If you've got to put gas in your car, put gas in your car. You've got to eat something. You know, you, you, there's, there's th if you've got kids, <laughs> you've got to spend money on kids, right? But I'm talking about where you're concerned. If it's not absolutely necessary, just say to yourself, I'm not doing it. I'm just not going to do it. I'm gonna, I'm, and, and as you do it, I want you to think about what you're doing and, and the, the, the intentionality of it. And, and maybe you're like Mike, where you come up on something and you think, you know, I'd like to have that, but I'm not spending money this week. Next week, if I want that still, maybe I give myself permission to buy that, but this week, no, uh-uh, not doing it. It's off limits. So a one-week spending fast. I really hope that you will attempt to do it, that you'll engage, and that you will try to find out a little bit about yourself and see um, if what we're talking about this week, this morning, isn't something that, that applies to you as well. 
much of what I'm saying in this series has been driven by a guy named Jeff Mannion. Um, you know, typically I'm just learning as much as I can from other people and trying to tell you what I've learned. That's how it goes with me. And Jeff Mannion wrote a book called Satisfied. Uh, Jeff and his wife, Chris, have a house that they raised their kids in. They lived kind of out in the country, about four miles either way between two villages. And they, they, you know, they would go for walks in one of the villages. They would go up and take a walk. And um, Jeff said, you know, as we were walking through the neighborhoods, we would see certain houses that were for sale. And we would comment to each other, boy, that's a cute house, or boy, I really like that, or I don't like this. And once in a while, he said, we'd see one, and we'd think, boy, I really like that one. And he said, we'd go over, and we'd take the little paper out of the, the plexiglass box that's on the sign, you know, and take it home and think about it and talk about it and dream about it. And so there came this discussion about, are we going to, you know, move? I mean, do we need to move? And, and he writes this at the conclusion of his book, and I want to close with it this morning. We live in the house in which we raised our children, a home that is more than adequate. And yet we find ourselves nosing around from time to time wondering if a move lies somewhere out there in our future. Our conversation is marked by an overarching tone of freedom. We feel free to stay. We feel free to move. Whatever we decided, we are confident of a few things. If we are incapable of finding contentment in our current home, most assuredly we will not find contentment in a new one. A different house cannot define us, rescue us, or fill us. Any latent emptiness or dysfunction will stalk us to a new dwelling, and our real identity and fullness will follow us as well. Who we are foundationally cannot be altered with a new address. There is freedom in what we're talking about today. What we're saying is, I want you to bring identity to your car. I don't want your car to bring identity to you. I want you to bring identity to your house. Don't let your house bring identity to you. Well, we live here. That makes us special. No. You bring identity to it. Don't let your clothes bring identity to you. You bring identity to your clothes. An identity as one who has been adopted and redeemed and sealed. Good luck on your spending fast. Let's pray together. Father, for some of us this week will be a very difficult week if we decide to go for this. Some, some people are hearing this and thinking, well, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do it. And they're probably the ones that need to do it the most. But Father, for the ones who will actually put in the work and do this this week, I pray that you would meet them in the middle of it. And I pray that you would speak to them, that you would show them what, what needs to be changed in their heart, that you would maybe show them some habits that you would like to change in them. Father, I pray that they would see the freedom that is theirs as a believer in Jesus to buy or not to buy, but sometimes just buying something may not be good for us. And so what we're really doing in this exercise is just inviting you to come in and to have your way and to teach us something new and to make some room for you in our hearts. And Father, that's never a bad thing. So would you be with us in the week to come and help us to see what it is to live a life that is dedicated to you, 
thinking about you, meditating on you, benevolent toward you and to others, and that maybe we don't need quite as much as we thought we did. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.